0: Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh.
1: And I am Josh Hallman.
0: As a reminder, Act 2 is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter, of which this podcast is just one of the things that we do. We will soon, in fact, be announcing the date of our next Act 2 event. Yes. Which will be open to the public. So even if you're not officially in Act 2, you are welcome to come. So subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on that announcement. You can also DM us with questions, topic suggestions. We've also had people recently just writing us to say, hey, I'm also struggling with writing a spec. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you can also do that. And you reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com. All spelled out or on our Instagram and Twitter and threads at
1: act 2 Writers. Threads is dead, man. It's, it's gone. It's dead.
0: I hate that. Okay. Today, we are doing a breakdown of the opening of Spider-Verse across the universe. But mm-hmm. first, this week in writing.
1: This weekend in writing. I have a couple things. Okay. I was recently in Wisconsin. Yeah. I watched a little bit of War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Okay. Have you seen it? Yes. Okay. I actually had this feeling that you hadn't seen it. Right. And it just it worried me.
0: No, it was definitely in a stage of my life, which is probably my entire life, where when Tom Cruise comes out with a movie, you see it. You just, it's an obvious.
1: Yeah, you have to. So I was watching War of the Worlds, and I to be honest, I didn't watch it all the way through. I just watched most of it, but I started yeah. to, later that night, couldn't sleep. Nice humid Wisconsin night, and I'm laying in bed thinking about War of the Worlds, and the way that movie begins, or the way like it's about Tom Cruise. He is a bad father, and then the aliens come, and then at the end of the movie, the aliens they die because they weren't ready for the uh, climate and the 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 Earth's atmosphere essentially. So they they just die out. Do you remember that?
0: I remember that ending.
1: Okay, that's what I'm pretty sure the ending is. I was thinking like how War of the Worlds is about the arc of Tom Cruise and his relationship with his kids set to this backdrop of this alien invasion, but I was thinking of other movies that ended where the protagonist didn't kill or solve the problem, like that he didn't figure this out, he figured his relationship out. He just became a protective father.
0: Yeah, the movie is very small, really. It's just about like their journey, right? Him and his yeah. daughter.
1: Which I thought was awesome, interesting, yeah. a little crazy. And I actually have been trying to think of other examples where movies end where the protagonist doesn't save the day, but rather saves their relationship, which is the more important thing. But I'm just saying, for the sake of a movie, usually you see a Tom Cruise thing happen where he's like, yo, I just climbed up on this alien. Granted, he fights off aliens, but like, sure, big picture he doesn't save the world.
0: It's an unusual movie structure.
1: It is an unusual movie stru- structure. Can you think of any other s- movies off the top of your head? I should have warned you because if I couldn't think of any.
0: <laughs> yeah, because off the top of my head, no. Okay. I mean like does does something like Raiders of the Lost Ark count because he doesn't defeat the Nazis. He actually loses at the end, but the ark kills all the Nazis.
1: Yeah, but I think he's clever enough to like turn your head it, right. And then the arc kills everybody and he's he's knowledgeable.
0: Yeah, his ending is still like very closely tied to the MacGuffin to the problem of the it, world.
1: It, it was just an it's just an interesting movie and structure to think about. That's all. Yeah. That's all I got to think in. And, and
0: do you think it's successful?
1: Well, so this is the other thing about it. Is I remember first seeing it and being like, Wow, that movie is a ride. Like I loved it. I love Spielberg. I love Tom Cruise, but I, I don't know if it's successful like I don't yeah I, I, I'm afraid to say that it's not because I love the movie
0: I mean I'll say I've only seen it once which is unusual for me and Tom Cruise yeah and that is
1: unusual that says everything
0: I think it says a lot and I remember being bored by it and it, whether or not that's related to him defeating the aliens or not because that's the thing we that's definitely a trap we always fall into as writers and and we get this note constantly from executives. is like, can there be bigger world stakes? But I feel like if I wrote War of the Worlds and ended without Tom Cruise solving the world problem, then first note I would get back is like, can he solve the world's problem? Yeah. And maybe the, the answer can definitely be no. So I, I don't think my problem with the movie was that. I think it was just I was bored for other reasons. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's the thing about writing is everything can work if it's just done well.
1: Damn! All right, I've got one other thing. I'm gonna move okay. on. I'm gonna I'm gonna present this in more of a fireside chatty kind of way.
0: Ooh, L- I love little, fireside chats.
1: Little old school. I have a friend who's a writer, and before um, the strike, and be- he was kind of having some momentum. A younger writer coming up, he had momentum. I think he had maybe either sold or optioned something. Things were going in the right direction. They were trending in the right right way for him, and like over the last six months or so, even kind of before the strike happened, I guess he started to go on a rocky relationship with his manager. And during the strike, it's gotten even worse where the manager isn't very responsive. And he's, he's basically just stressed that he is upset with his manager, especially with like the momentum he had, but he's fully aware that he can't do anything with anything right now. So, What advice would you give to someone right now who might be struggling with their representation in this climate?
0: This might not be good advice, and other people may have different advice, but I don't know if the climate matters. Like, if you're unhappy in your relationship, why stick around? Like, they're not, they're literally not doing anything for you during the strike or not during the strike. So, what does it matter if you fire them now or after the strike? Literally, what, what does that matter? So I would say, yeah, find someone else. Um, and it's interesting because my thought had been that managers and agents aren't taking on new people right now mm-hmm. because of the strike. And I think that's actually more of a case-by-case basis than I had assumed because I was actually on the line at Disney and started talking to an agent and I was like, oh, man, you must be doing nothing right now, Right. And probably taking on no new clients, he's like, actually the opposite. I'm having a lot of meetings with my clients uh, to talk about strategy, to talk about what should you be working on now and prep for the strike to be over. Wow. Who do we want to target when the strike is over, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, he is reading new people. Um, cause that never stops for him. But I, have also talked to agents who are like, yeah, everything's super slow, not doing anything, not reading new people, can't right. do anything. So it's, it's a case by case basis, but I think it's almost always a case by case basis anyways. So long story short, leave. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can I tell you one last thing? Cause I've been struggling yeah. with my spec and what I justified and started to tell myself the lies that I've been working through is yeah. I was like, you know what? Everyone's going to have a spec coming out of the strike. It's okay that I don't have mine. It's going to be flooded. The entire industry is going (laughs) to be flooded with specs.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's true, but also finish your spec.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, those weren't that like the most exciting this week's in writing, but two things that were on my mind.
0: Those are great. Can we then transition so smoothly into spec
1: check? Oh, yeah.
0: Okay, so I also have not made a ton of progress. If you remember last yes. week, I was so <laughs> excited. I was like, I got notes back from writer's group and I had rewritten the entire first act when I got home from writer's group was my last spec check. So this spec check, I just started, so it's been a week. I just started re going back into the document yesterday mm-hmm. and I um, I texted Josh and, and Dave, friend of the podcast, Gold buddies. Gold buddies. Um, I'm gonna do the Jeff Howard outline process, which is uh, Jeff talked about it on his on our last episode, and I didn't do that at all. I opened my outline, so jazzed to get into the outline process, and then I reread it and was like, I just want to write this. I don't (laughs) want to fucking do Act Two and Act Three. I don't have that kind of like. I'm excited to get into it, and so. I started writing yesterday, and I managed to write a few pages, none of which I like, by the way, which is so weird because I was so excited to write it. But as I got into it, I was like, God, this is boring. (laughs) So I'm excited to rewrite it because I think that's where the excitement will come from. But that's where I am. I'm a few pages into the actual script. I think what I'm going to do is write Act 1 to just see how my characters feel and talk and live and behave and what they care about. Sure. And then that will help me, and then I'll probably beat (laughs) out Act two and Act three before going. I mean, I have to because I don't know where I would go otherwise. Wow, So that's where I am.
1: Listen, I, I'm not. Ha- I'm not happy. You're not making progress because misery loves company. But um, I'm. I'm making no progress. I'm just sucked. I suck at writing a spec right now, which is what I love. <laughs> the The truth is, and I, I'm just kidding. I want you to finish yours. I was. Ta- I took something on where I've been editing some videos for someone for social media, and I <laughs> was helping out in something that has occupied a good majority of the last 10 days of my life. That's my excuse. It's a good one. That's a it's a great one. So that it's just my brain's been in that territory, but I've been just thinking and thinking and thinking. But something coming out of the uh, Jeff Howard interview and something you and I talk about often is writing for what the audience wants to see and like if you're coming at it from an audience perspective, which is kind of counterintuitive to if you're like, "Well, where's this character coming from?" So I've been going back into a lot of like I've been thinking a lot about how can I write these moments where they're still kind of character based, but like, what would the what would an audience want to see in this moment, which I don't know if that's going to work or not. And again, I'm like fighting that urge because that doesn't seem right.
0: There was a writer's room situation where I remember very clearly where we were like, we don't know what happens in this episode, what happens in this episode. And we had all these ideas and none of them were any good. And then finally, someone said, Well, what do we want? What does the audience want to see happen here? The audience wants to see this character get with this character, or they want to see this character fight in this particular way. So then we started realizing okay, like this is where the excitement is. Let's write to what's exciting. And that helped us break through what we wanted. So it's a super valid way of thinking about it.
1: Okay. I'm just gonna have a bunch of cool shit in my script that doesn't really add up
0: what if you turn it in and it's like the greatest thing you've ever written
1: like oh my god this why is she doing karate here and then she's like a banker in the next scene like what is going on here
0: doesn't matter it's amazing it's great that's what i
1: wanted i think what you want to watch is that anyway that's the update i promise to you and to the to the podcast world i'm Fucking getting back into this spec. And you and I are brainstorming a spec right now as well. Yeah. Boom.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got this. We got Not this. Not worried.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: All right. Shall we get into the opening of Spider-Verse across the universe?
1: Yeah. We chose the opening of the Spider-Verse because of how crucial and important, op- important openings are in any movie or screenplay. And I think we both loved this movie, and we both knew that it was a really good opening, and we thought we were going to do the first five minutes, but it ended up being the first 20 minutes because that is essentially the opening of this movie yeah but just bigger picture it's always really important to look at like the opening sequences to your favorite scripts or favorite movies to see how it absolutely how it sets the tone and and lays the groundwork
0: I know and it's nice to get back into a breakdown of sorts to kind of I don't know it just stretches your your brain a bit and inspires you and you learn so many things just instantly. So yeah, last night we both watched the opening of this movie um, and I was texting Josh, I was like, wait, do we just do it to the five minute mark or are yeah. we going for the whole cold open, which is, yeah, it's about 20 minutes. Um, so we watched all the way through when, and by the way, these are nothing but spoilers, so please go see Spider-Verse Across the Universe. It's yeah. so good. So we go we watched all the way through when Gwen Stacy is at her decision point of whether she's going to stay in her universe or jump through the portal and join this elite squad of spideys yeah this is such an interesting opener too it really stands out as i rewatched it as as a interesting version of how to open your movie so basically before miles morales ever really enters the story we, we get the kind of gwen story which is Obviously, such an interesting way to open your movie about Miles Morales. Yeah. Um, Because there's definitely a version of this movie that still opens on Miles and starts as the movie does when we get into his story. Um, And then suddenly, Gwen Stacy enters his world. She explains basically the entire opening of Mm -hmm. what happened to her, but she explains it. And maybe you are visual with it and you show kind of flashbacks and stuff of what she's describing. But that's definitely a version of this movie that could exist. But instead they decided to open with Gwen Stacy and I'm sure that was partly a marketing decision because I know they plan to release a Gwen Stacy spinoff movie and they want people to get super excited for that but like let's talk about it just as a story strategy I guess like what do you think of opening it on the secondary character instead of the main character?
1: I mean, it worked. I thought it was awesome that they did this because it, it really is. It feels like like the first act almost, or no, up into like an inciting incident for her arc. And they just, it re- was so smart because, and I know we're going to get into this, but, you know, it starts on this high note with her drumming and everything, but she gives exposition of her and Miles, and then it almost tells her story again of, oh yeah, that's who Gwen Stacy is. Like she's she's just kind of talking her way through it and, who her dad was and who her Peter Parker was, and and then it gets it, you know, I liked it. I I it works obviously, but like I don't I don't even know if my brain would go there if I could figure this out.
0: Yeah, I almost wonder if it came later in the writing as a solution to something. Mm-hmm. Like I wonder if they wrote the movie as normal. Miles Morales is how he opened the movie, and we're in his POV, and then suddenly when Stacy comes in and she gives all this exposition, and you're like, wait. This is so much heavy lifting yeah. to have to do in the middle of the movie that like really slows the movie down here. So what if we front load a lot of this information? I wonder if that's kind of how it came mm. about because it feels like kind of the main story reason for doing this, if I were just taking a guess, is to set up Spider-Man 2099 and his whole deal, the guy who play- is played by Oscar Isaac, and to make his introduction a fun one which A, again, It makes it so it's not exposition heavy when you get this information that he leads this group of Spideys. In fact, his story about that gets cut off by Gwen because she gets so bored by it. Mm -hmm. So This is a big exposition moment of who this guy is and she cuts him off, but we still get enough to know simply that he is the leader of an elite group of spider people. Mm -hmm. Um, We also get that he comes from another dimension and he says that he is here specifically to clean up the mess that Gwen helped create with Kingpin's Collider in the first movie and there's a great moment where the vulture is like what are you guys talking about yeah and like shut up which is definitely like a trick writers use because if you've never seen the first movie and you have no idea what they're talking about when he says i'm here to clean up your mess from the kingpin collider situation the vulture is there to be your voice if you've never seen the spider-verse movie and it kind of tells you like it's okay keep going it's okay if you don't know this information just keep going with the story. Mm-hmm. And it's inter- It's an interesting trick to have another character in the scene be like, what the fuck are you talking about? It just helps someone. Because otherwise, if I'm watching that and I've never seen Spider-Verse 1, I'm like, "Why the fuck? I'm so lost. Yeah. What are we talking about? But when another character says, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah,
1: you can laugh it's at okay it. It's
0: okay if I don't know. Yeah.
1: Just to put a quick little side note to this is I've been, I watched the Lego movies recently. And oh, yeah. I've I've seen all of the Lord and Miller movies. And obviously, they were producers on this. And that's like a staple of I think of, of like kind of their tone and their uh, sensibility is always calling out really obvious things and they they do them in such humorous ways but it also it's exactly what you're saying it like it creates a funny moment but it, it allows you to be like oh, okay I'm with I'm with that person I have no yeah. idea what's happening
0: yeah there are plenty of times we've been in the writer's room which is so interesting where we've been like man this the solve is too easy like For example, if we're not smart enough to come up with a more complex solve for how character A and B get out of a sticky situation, Mm -hmm. so we just have them like find the easy solution, we're like, well, we can't think of a better solution. How about we have a character say, this seems too easy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you like make a joke out of it, right? And then the audience kind of forgives you. So, yeah, it is an interesting trick, and it's funny that you noticed it in their other movies as
1: well. Oh, for sure. They do it in Lego movies and everything. It is wild that like this spot character that happens later after the opening isn't set up as the main villain in the in the beginning.
0: Right. It's
1: just it's so there's so much going on and this is balanced so well that I feel like any most other scenarios would introduce Miles and Spot. Well
0: actually that's such an interesting point because it feels like the actual movie's villain is 2099, mm-hmm. right? Like he's the ultimate movie villain so you are introducing him in the opening but what i love about it and what's so clever with sort of a consequence of starting the way that it did was the introduction to twenty nine ninety nine is fun in the sense that we really like him when we meet him yeah and the fact that he ends up being the true villain of the movie but when we meet him he's quippy and he's brave and he's capable and he's a leader is a really interesting place to start him um, because yeah. it gives us so much room to grow into him being a villain, but also when Miles meets him later, and Oscar Isaac starts spouting his kind of villain monologue, because we liked him so much in the opener, we are listening to him. We're empathizing with him as an audience because he's not just this sort of nameless, faceless villain. He's this guy that we liked ever since he came on screen. So I think those are kind of the main reasons why it feels like story-wise, they start. They might have started the way they did. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. Yeah. And it doesn't you don't need to focus on the spot villain.
0: No. Okay, let's get into kind of the nitty-gritty of the breakdown itself. So take us kind of section by section. So we open on Gwen Stacy. She's doing kind of her version of what has become a joke over the Spider-Verse, which is the VO of like talking directly to the audience, right? Yeah. She says, Let's do things differently this time. Like so differently. Which I love this line because A, it tells us this movie is going to be very different and not what we expect, but it also is in her voice because she says, like, so differently, yeah, which I just like. It's just a very small detail. Then she proceeds to tell the story of Spider-Verse 1, basically, like how she had this friend named Miles, how Miles had a hard life. But there's this really great runner in her story where she constantly repeats the words, and he's not the only one, Mm -hmm. which I loved because it created this idea automatically that her story is just as valid, it's just as complex, it's just as interesting as Miles is, which is important because if we're going to watch 20 minutes of an opener of a movie we thought was about Miles Morales, we need to know that this person that we're in this movie with, Gwen, is worth watching. And so she continues to say that, which I think helps us. Yeah. And then one phrase she has, which is he's not the only one who like felt these things, kind of launches us into Gwen's true opener where we're experiencing the movie through her eyes. And then she says, if you think you know the rest, you don't. I thought I knew the rest, but I didn't. And this line is super awesome because it's something we've talked about a couple episodes ago where a character just flat out reminds the audience like why you should be watching and caring about this movie. Like in Indiana Jones, which was the example we used where Brody says, hey, this quest is super dangerous. No one has seen this relic in 3,000 years. This mission is impossible. But Indiana Jones is of course going to go after it anyway. And that's the adventure of the movie. So here... Gwen is telling the audience, you think this is just another Spider-Verse movie, but you're wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a mystery out there that you don't expect. And I love that that line like helps us lean into the movie a bit.
1: Yeah. Also, in this opening, it sets up what I think is Gwen's arc. She's in a band. She's yeah. going off on her own. She's drumming. She's getting emotional. And then she quits the band. And she's like, I have no band. I have nobody. I am all alone. Yes spoiler alert she forms a band at the end of the movie and I feel like that is yes. so that sets up right off the bat you know you come it comes in on a, a drum like literally, like boom 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 And so yeah, very important. It's
0: so important and she's so alone and she even has this line, which is a big transitional line in the opening where she says in this line of work you always end up a solo act mm-hmm. but you're right. the last shot is her surrounded by this band of Spideys,
1: mm-hmm.
0: It's just so cool. Um, but when she says that we that we always end up a solo act, it kind of launches us into Gwen's origin story of how she became a solo act, right? Like she, we see Peter Parker. I kind of want to hold on this scene for a second because I thought it was really interesting. the The part where you see Peter Parker pushed to the ground in a school hallway, Gwen protects him, and then Peter, who is sick of being bullied, drinks this vial of green stuff that we know can't be a good, <laughs> and then. It kind of, then it goes into prom and you sort of hear the whole story of how Peter turned into the lizard. But everything that we do like those beats, we get in three shots. It's not a full scene. It's really interesting. So like the first shot is Peter getting pushed down in the school hallway. The second shot is Gwen getting in the bully's face. We see Peter in the background behind her. He looks shamed. And then the third beat is Peter in the same clothes as he was bullied in drinking this green potion. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this may be just a little detail, but like Peter wearing the same clothes really helps the audience because it shows basically direct causality, right? Him being in the same clothes means, okay, it probably happened the same day. He's fresh off being bullied. Yeah. And hating being bullied, he's going to drink whatever this is, so this can't be good. Yeah. So we sense all these context clues and the visuals of the scene. And I want to highlight that for a second because ultimately when you write and you produce your own stuff, these are all tricks that you can use to get information across to the audience in a more succinct and simple way. Because I think a lesser writer-director could have made an entire meal of this scene. You could have have written an entire scene where Gwen talks to Peter after he's been pushed. Peter admits, I'm sick of being pushed around. I want things to change. Yeah. But you don't. You just get it in a shot. And I think that's great.
1: The music that's played when the reptile Peter Parker attacks the school prom... It is such a somber kind of tone, usually like, you know, in contrast to moving, not to jump ahead, but with the vulture, it's like this intense action thing. But when we're getting the Gwen, the Gwen moment, it's just, it's like the tone of it is so much different and, mm. it's, you know, very reflective of how she's feeling. But yeah, I love that's that. Great. I love the point that you just made about the the clothing. and
0: Yeah, I think mean, small tangent that's related. I told you yesterday that I read randomly the first two pages of Raiders of the Lost Ark.
1: Goddamn right. And
0: <laughs> and it's so interesting because that whole opening is iconic. It's one of the greatest openings of all time. The greatest introductions of a character of all time because Indy doesn't talk. You just see him tracking through the woods. We don't even see his face. You just see kind of parts of his body. And then finally, he kind of turns on one of the guides who's about to shoot him grabs his gun out of his hand with his whip, and then steps into the light, mm-hmm. revealing his face for the first time after like, I don't know, like five five plus minutes. But in the script that I read, which was clearly an early draft, Indy did a lot of talking mm. in the first two pages of the movie. But all that talking got whittled down to what we know today as the opener, which is just visuals. So again, it's a good reminder, this, the Gwen opener here and Indian Jones, that like, you can tell a lot through visuals without dialogue. I love it. Moving
1: on. Moving on.
0: Gwen is now at the prom, gets attacked by the lizard. I actually hadn't registered necessarily the music, but now that you're talking about it, you're right. Even though it's an action scene, it's the music is sad. Yeah. Right? Because it, and that's also a trigger for you to let you know this is this this is a terrible transformation yeah. that has happened. Yeah. Can I move on to what might be my favorite part of the opener go which is when Gwen returns to her dad
1: oh yeah
0: so sweet okay okay (laughs) (laughs) and just little things were done in the in like you could see how you could write this scene and just improve all of your writing
1: so I'm gonna say one more thing before you get into that because we're moving on from the prom yeah when she walks into the prom she's like she looks really nice she's dressed up she looks like a, I don't want to say she's like some beautiful character, but she looks like a nice, she's.
0: Yeah, she's like a punk princess. Yeah, she
1: looks very nice. And someone's like, hey Gwen. And she like waves and says hi to them. And there is a yeah. very clear difference between like that gl- Gwen before Peter Parker yeah. has died to the post Peter Parker. Like yeah. when we meet her, she's just kind of like angry and aggro. And 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 then when we, she kind of does that little flashback, she's, she's all hi. How's it going? You know, she's still nice.
0: Yeah, that's a great point.
1: Okay, sorry. The the moment. I cut you off.
0: That's a good transition to Spidey Gwen in this scene when she returns home to her dad. Dad's cooking dinner. He says he caught a break in the Spider Woman case. And he says this hoping it will cheer Gwen up. Obviously, it doesn't. And they argue. And the blocking here in this scene is so great because dad is standing at the door. His body language is very open. It's very loving. He literally has his like chest kind of like facing her, open to her. Yeah. But Gwen is across the room with her back to him, and she's kind of like hunched inward a bit. So you automatically, regardless of dialogue, if you just muted it or you didn't understand English, you get the immediate sense that Dad wants to repair this relationship, but Gwen is sad and she's closed off because, mm-hmm. so of course, she's keeping secrets. And one effect that this has. In the story is that you naturally feel bad for the dad just simply because of how he's positioned right because he wants kindness and openness here in his body language which makes you kind of feel for him but gwen is resisting him and then they have this great moment where he says i don't want to fight and he says are you too punk rock to give your old man a hug yeah and before he can even get the word out of his mouth she rushes across the frame and she hugs him and it's so sweet and you love both of them and you're rooting for them. Yeah. And I think that is super, super key. And I want to highlight that for a second in terms of writing lessons. And the first writing lessons is the blocking. I think blocking is so important in a scene. And while you definitely don't need to highlight the blocking, um, you know, do the direction of every character in every scene, when it's very key, like in this scene, I think you absolutely are within your rights to write the blocking of the scene. And I know we get a lot of advice saying, like, don't do any of that because that's the director's job. Mm-hmm. But there's ways for you to tell the director how this scene should be blocked or, like, what the emotions are in this scene. Like, you can say something like, for example, Gwen's dad follows Gwen into the room, standing at the door, open and hopeful he could make Gwen smile. Gwen ignores him, packing a bag without looking at him. Just that, like, just just... That to me is like a writing lesson of the power of blocking. You can just say that, and you get a lot across without dialogue. Damn. And the second piece,
1: I'm still bad.
0: <laughs> the second piece Damn. is, I think, flipping the script on what a family argument can look like. Because I think usually, as writers, we try to find the most dramatic scene possible, and the most dramatic thing feels like two people who are fighting, <laughs> who are mad at each other, and they leave that scene unresolved. That's more dramatic, right? And that's our job. But this scene, and basically the entirety of Ted Lasso, Mm -hmm. I think is a good reminder that you can have conflict, but also show love and complexity of emotions, and that that doesn't take away from the dramatic conflict in a scene. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: In fact, I feel like because they hug at the end of their fight, It's so satisfying. It just makes me love these characters even more. And again, root for them. And that's such a key part about writing is you want the audience to root for your characters to succeed. And I think this scene absolutely does all of those things. And I love it so much.
1: I agree with everything you said. It's so perfect. It's so good. That hug is so crucial to their relationship and then how impactful the end of her opening is. When in uh, which we'll get to, but um, I love it because it's just shows to me. I was like, this shows that she's really needing that connection. She needs someone to talk to. She doesn't want to be this lonely person, this lonely band member. She needs someone, but she can't even talk to her own dad. And, yeah. and now, like there she is. She hugs him. There's the connection. Um, and then he has to break away. He has to break away and go after Spider Woman. Go after Spider Woman.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point too because I feel like. I tend to not like teenage girls in particular when they're written because they're just punk. Yeah. Like they're just, they just have attitude and you're supposed to understand that they do want a hug and they do want connection, but they're just too asshole teenager to to bother. But this scene gives you both. It gives you a teenager who's struggling, who has an attitude problem, who can't talk about her feelings, but who also is loving and, and wants... Can- so, like, this is the kind of teenage girl that I love be- seeing, right? yeah. which is more real. Like, I've definitely had fights with people I loved and then hugged them afterwards. It's just, it's a real situation. One last thing. Yeah.
1: Let's just say her dad dies at the end of her opening. Okay. Like, like in a, like, Ooh. if it was the Uncle Ben type thing. Yeah. Then I could see it working where they just fight. Her yes. dad's like, can you give me a hug? And she's like, not now, Dad. Just, yeah. I need some time. And then, if he dies, then she's living with this regret.
0: Yes. Maybe like the Tobey Maguire, the Tobey Maguire one.
1: I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to figure out in what version her not hugging her father it might work because it pays off so well in just, like at the end of the sequence or at the end of her opening because of good. um what she wants from him when she she's like literally like this is who I am. I'm your daughter, and he. we know that he loves her. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead.
0: Oh, I'm getting so emotional. It's so sweet. It's so sad. Okay. <laughs> You're absolutely right, though. That's definitely a version.
1: Yeah. But.
0: Okay. Yeah. Let's launch into what we've been waiting for, which is the fight. Right. At the Guggenheim. Which I think has a three-act structure. I think so, too. And I think we get, like, what we expect from a Hallmark Spider-Man fight, right? You get, like, all of the jokes. Um, You get the kind of Peter Parker version of shit talking where she's cracking jokes while fighting. You get the Spidey acrobatics. She comes in kind of cocky, going toe-to-toe with the vulture. And she's not really getting her ass kicked because it's act one of the fight, but she's still not winning. Right. And then, right as she's about to be killed, Spider-Man 2099 comes in and kicks vulture's ass mm-hmm. so we are immediately impressed by him and that feels like the break into act two mm-hmm. you have a new character a new kind of dynamic
1: yep yep
0: okay and then and please keep me honest if you don't think these are the outbreaks. No, <laughs> i agree
1: i just want to add one more thing in to mm-hmm. just to add to your argument of this being an act one is she sees the vulture it is the vulture right the vulture yeah yeah she sees the vulture and she's like let me guess you glitched, and all of a sudden, you ended up here. And and he's like, "That's exactly what happened to me." You know, like, and it was kind of funny, but also it gives us exposition of the setup and a reminder of what happened in the last movie and what is still currently happening across all of the multiverse.
0: That's a great point. Yes, it's it's still keeping with what the problem of the movie is. Yeah, well, it's introducing the problem of the movie, I guess. Up till now, we haven't really talked about glitching and portal jumping right. and all of that stuff. So yeah, now it's like, oh, okay, now the movie feels like it's really starting. The problem of the movie has been intru- reintroduced. Yeah. Then Act 2, you get 2099, kind of starts getting his ass kicked. And now we have Gwen and 2099 have to work together against the Vulture. That's clearly too much of a threat for just one of them at a time. And the Vulture actually manages to beat both of them at the same time, yeah. which is what prompts 2099 to call for backup. And then you get pregnant Spider-Woman, flies in on a motorcycle, slams into the vulture, knocks him down, and you kind of have a similar moment to when 2099 entered the scene where she's just a total badass. Mm -hmm. That feels to me like the break into three, maybe?
1: Maybe. Let's keep talking it through.
0: Okay. So then I would say the next three is... 29, 2099 brings them kind of all into the fight. So now all three of them have to battle the vulture. And then something I think really interesting happens, which kind of becomes a plot turning point, where in the act three of this fight, pregnant Spider-Woman wants to recruit Spider-Gwen yeah. to their yeah, yeah. Spidey first. But 2099 doesn't want to. And when she asks him why, he says, you know why,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is, holy shit, there is a huge mystery going on that we didn't even know was happening. It becomes the J.J. Abrams mystery box thing, right? Where where now I have a new question. What the hell does he know about Gwen that we don't? Yeah. And then here, the music starts to change because the Spideys start to lose, which is like your low point. So I guess this is still Act 2. This is like the low point of the fight. Mm -hmm. And maybe that huge mystery beat is maybe the midpoint of Act 2. It's like a big turning point in the, yeah. in the fight. So this becomes the low point of Act 2 where the music changes, the Spideys are losing, people are fleeing like crazy and we get 2099 kind of in midair over the Guggenheim. He's about to bite and inject mm. poison into the vulture when a cop helicopter causes a new problem. And now our heroine of the entire movie and especially the opening finally gets to shine because now it's been the 2099 show for a little bit and now the... Mm-hmm. The helicopter is plummeting down through the Guggenheim. Um, There's a bunch of innocent people who are going to die. So Spidey Gwen has to save the day by stringing a bunch of webs across the Guggenheim to catch the helicopter. Awesome. And then 2099 and Spider-Woman, they jump in to help. So all of their powers combined kind of save everyone. Uh And then kind of the sort of denouement of the action scene is the vultures all tangled up. He's caught. Great. That part's over. But then 2099 looks up at Gwen, and she's in this kind of epic pose. We're shooting her from below. And he says, that's what I was going to do. Which is super impressive because he's clearly the leader of all these Spideys. He knows a lot about Spideys. And Gwen is just as impressive as this guy. Yeah. Cool. Like, as an audience member, I'm super in.
1: I am I love her. Yeah. I'm just invested in everything you're saying right
0: yeah. now. Yeah. And by the way, I think that's a really cool way to make your hero seem a certain way mm-hmm. so like i'm gonna sound very pretentious for a second do it but something i learned from reading tolstoy <laughs> was this I warned you was that like one of the best ways you can understand another character is by seeing them through someone else's eyes who's in the room. Mm. So like if you want your character to seem awesome or impressive, you have someone else comment on how awesome and impressive they are. Yeah. Conversely, if you want them to be a bumbling idiot, you just have someone else in the room react that way to them. And so I think this is something we can definitely use as writers and they do it here to great effect.
1: Strong Tolstoy coming in hot incorrect
0: okay okay that's it that's i think the 3 X structure of the fight yeah
1: that sounds about right okay so basically in this opening which i'm i think we're just assuming everyone's seen this movie but like her father then comes and he holds a gun on her and she shoots she this is what's i think is really important is she like goes to shoot a web at him but she's out of webs which is a very organic moment because that could feel forced in a different scenario. But since she just used all of her web to Word. save all of these people, like mm-hmm. she used a lot of webs. And yes. uh, it just makes it made all the sense why she wouldn't be able to do this. Although maybe she could have jumped out of the way, but whatever. And then her dad comes up and her dad's like, hands up. And I was, I m- messaged you this how crazy that scene. I loved like the animation in this scene and the coloring mm-hmm. and, and it, the contrast and everything. And, um, Uh, She reveals who she is and it's this really heart-wrenching moment where the father is like, you know, he's conflicted and then he's like, you have the right to remain silent. So he's going to arrest his daughter and follow the law rather than believe her and now their relationship is completely fractured. This is the one person she had the connection with. Peter's gone. Now her father is gone. What the hell is going to happen to this woman?
0: Yeah, and they they really hold... On this moment for a long time because you are completely wondering is he gonna put his gun down? Yeah. Is he just gonna hug his daughter like they did before and say he understands everything? And they really let it breathe so that the audience is like, is is he? He's going to. He's going to. He's definitely going to, right? Right? Like it gives you time to even like elbow your buddy next to you and be like, he's definitely going to. And then (laughs) he doesn't. And that I think being able to hold for those moments, especially you, you have some leeway after a big fight scene to have a downbeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's you know to kind of let the roller coaster come down a little bit, and they really use that time well.
1: Yeah, it is true because you're watching it and you're like, well, he's going to just tell her to like get out of here, and we'll figure this out later, or just just escape, go go out the back, or something to that extent, and he doesn't. Her own father. Which is perfect because then, and it also then, not to step on your toes here, uh, but then it gives the Oscar Isaac and the pregnant Spider-Woman, you know, she's like, tells Oscar Isaac, like, yeah, she has no one. What's her, What's his name, Spider 2099?
0: 2099.
1: 2099. So she's like, she has no one. And, and then you can see he's a little conflicted, even behind a mask. Somehow they convey that he's conflicted. I know, and it's th- impressive. Throws the thing. She's like, I don't know how to handle this. She's like, yeah, yeah, and he gives her the
0: option to like tells her to join the club, yeah. So your whole and with that, it's so thematic, right? Like she she leaves the band, and here's her chance to join a club—people who understand her, people who are not going to try to arrest her, who accept her for who she is. But then that doesn't turn out to be the right club either. It's not just any club she needs to join. She needs to join a very specific club of people who care the same way that she cares, and that's what happens at the end of the movie. Um, And it's great. And they also, which I think is interesting too, is we hold on her moment of choice as she's holding the bracelet and then looking back at her dad caught in this cage. And we cut out to black before she actually makes a choice. Mm -hmm. But we do see like a look of determination on her face. So we kind of can guess that she's going through the portal, but we don't need to see her go through the portal. And to me, cutting out early in scenes can always make you feel more excited about it and can feel more epic so that's actually a note we get a lot is, can we get out of this scene earlier? And I think is something that writers do need to pay attention to because we have a tendency to, I think, want to close the loop, as it were, in every scene. If a character walks through a door, has a conversation, then he also walks out the door. It's like, you don't need to have him walk out the door too. Yeah, I, know that's a, I don't mean that literally. I mean that kind of figuratively. So yeah, I mean- all of these things are just so many good examples of how to write.
1: Yeah, and then it cuts, and then you're into the Miles story, and then it's like, yeah. the new, that, that's like the essentially the cold opening of this yeah. movie, which is 20 minutes. I looked; it was like 19 minutes and 59 seconds, or 58 yeah. seconds, which actually made me wonder if they got the note that it needed to be under 20 minutes. <laughs> and and um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It just sets up it sets up Gwen so perfectly. It creates mystery. You, you're you what you, like what you were saying the J.J. Abram, Abrams Mystery Box 2099.
0: And it shows you the problem of the world. doesn't doesn't just tell you because you get Vulture from another dimension pop into this one. So you get to see in action all of it. And that's, I mean, overall just a really great way of showing how exposition can be delivered through action. Yeah. So good. So, so good. Thank you for suggesting this.
1: Hey, man. I'm glad we talked about it.
0: Made me realize what a horrible writer I am.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm done. That's probably why I can't finish my spec.
0: (laughs) We'll never be this good. (laughs) Well. Oh, God. Okay. On that note.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: Quote of the day. Quote of the day. Part of being a writer is getting yourself quiet enough and out of the way enough that the character can just speak. Callie Curry. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram and threads, or on Twitter at Tasha3.0.
1: I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on uh, Instagram.
0: And as always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist.